Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and once again we have an amazing guest on the show. We have Dr. Dominique who is a behavioural ecologist. Welcome to the show Dr. Dominique. Thanks for having me. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Yeah, you'd think that was an easy question, but sometimes I'm not even sure. Now, my, <laughs> so I'm a lecturer in animal ecology at the University of the Sunshine Coast. So I, uh, my job kind of is three jobs in one. I do what everybody thinks of when they think of a lecturer. I give lectures um, and I teach students. We do labs and field work and things like that. The other part of my job, of course, is I get to do research. So I go out into the field and I collect data and I answer big questions about the world. And then the other smaller part of my job is just a lot of paperwork, but (laughs) yeah, but also outreach. So going out to the community and communicating about science and all the things that we do as well. So yeah, it's a really fun job and I absolutely love it. I feel super lucky to be able to do what I do for sure. That's always a really good start. Are you able to talk a bit about your research? What is it that you're investigating? Yeah, what is behavioral ecology anyway? (laughs) I get asked that quite a bit actually. So um, of course ecology is the relationships between animals, each other, and their environment. So that can be two animals of the same species and looking at hey, how they interact with one another. It can be looking at animals of different species and how they interact with each other. Um, it can also be how animals interact with their habitat. So what do they eat? Where do they move? Why do they go there? What adaptations do they have to deal with things like climate or the terrain? So ecology encompasses all of that. But behavioral ecology focuses specifically on behavioral adaptations. So not necessarily physiology or morphology. So not necessarily what the body is made of um, and how the body works, but more about how the brain works and how animals behave and react and what they do and how they make decisions in their environment and when they're interacting with each other. So um, a lot of my behavioral ecology research has to do with communication. I really like to investigate questions about how animals speak to each other and how changes in the environment change the way that they speak to each other. So for example, one of the big questions that I've been spending most of my career asking is how if you live in a city, do you adapt the way that you speak to another one of your species if all there is is loud noise all around you? How do you communicate? If you're, if you're normally a bird that sings a nice sweet song and all of a sudden you've got a highway built next to you, do you just keep singing that sweet song or do you have to change tactics? And I found out some really cool stuff doing that kind of research. And, uh, you know, I get to go off on all sorts of ch- tangents when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. And, and I, I hope, too, that it is also a little bit relevant to, you know, it's dealing with how animals can adapt to the ways that we're changing the world because it's not going to stop um, so that they can actually stick around which is good yeah so some behaviors of animals are 
or enabling them to, to stick around, even though we're trying our best to, to ruin things for them. That's really cool research. Very important, undeniably. <laughs> Have you got any results that you can share with us? Like, for example, do city animals have a different accent or a different speed? Because I know talking to city people versus country people, there's an accent difference. There's like intonation differences. Is it the same thing with animals? It absolutely is, which is really incredible. Yeah. So some of the work that I've done has found that songbirds, so small little songbirds, especially silver eyes, which are a little species of songbird, songbird native to Australia, sing differently in cities than they do in the countryside. So much so they've got kind of like these little words or phrases that they use that are really specific to cities. And interestingly, when you look at those phrases, like a bird from downtown Brisbane actually sounds more like a bird from downtown Melbourne than it does to a bird that lives just outside of Brisbane. So like this cityness is actually just infusing their language so much that you can almost pick whether a bird is from a city environment or a rural environment just based on these couple of phrases that they use, which is really, really crazy. But they also do things like they sing, um, they sing a lot higher in the cities and that's to avoid the low rumble of traffic which can tend to mask, we call it. So it kind of drowns out those lower notes. So they just, there's no point in singing them anymore. So they sing a little bit higher. And then the city birds, which is a little bit different from city humans, I guess, also sing a little bit slower um, than the country birds. And we think that's also to kind of clarify um, the sounds that they're making when there's noise happening as well. But there's still a lot to learn. Um, you know, we're, we're learning things about whether actually having to learn songs in the city uh, is very difficult because of the noise. I've looked at how noise actually impacts the brain development of birds, which is really interesting as well, because it, it actually does. <laughs> so yeah, there's all sorts of things going on with noise. And it's one of those questions where the more you find out, the more questions you've got in the deeper you dig, the more you figure out you don't know and the more you can ask. But that's what I absolutely love about science anyway. So I, I would hate if we ever ran out of questions to ask. That would be a very alarming day. <laughs> can you do an experiment or have you done where you get like a city and a country bird of the same like species, etc. together? Like, can they still communicate? Yeah. So I've tried to do this, but silver eyes, my study species, they really don't like actually being part of experiments. <laughs> so they tend to sort of ruin things when you bring them all together in captivity. But actually what we found is that even if you bring a country bird into a city environment, it can actually change its song right away. So it doesn't necessarily sing something that's not going to be understood. Now, I've actually just done an experiment with frogs, interestingly enough, because they also use acoustic communication. They call to each other in order to communicate, and they also live in cities. So you would think similar things would be happening. And it looks like whether you're in the city or not actually determines whether you react to city calls or not. So what I mean by that is if you're a country frog and you hear a city frog in the country, you might think, eh, that's all right, like whatever. But if you're 
a frog of, from the city or the country in the city and you hear a city frog, you're like, ooh, that sounds good. So it's actually kind of saying like you're picking this song or the call that is most appropriate for the area that you live in. And it's not necessarily to do with how the sender and the receiver maybe perceive each other outside of the context of their environment, which is kind of interesting as well. So it's sort of like, are you sexy? Well, it depends on where you're from and whether your song fits where you're from. <laughs> this is this is all quite fascinating. I think especially as in general, we don't think about noise pollution. We tend to think, like some of mm. us have probably thought about light pollution. Obviously, we think about like rubbish pollution, but we don't think about the effect that the sounds around us have on the animals. Yeah, and it's interesting too because, you know, in the cities it's very loud, but you don't even think about how loud, say, a highway is in the middle of a rural area or going through a national park. So, and or, you know, how loud um, an airplane is going overhead, even if it is in an otherwise completely pristine habitat. Even though a lot of pollution tends to have a reach farther than, you know, where it is produced, so something like a pollutant in a waterway will go far away from its source. Noise is similar, but it can reach almost everywhere. It's not restricted to the source. So it radiates. I don't know if you can hear noise coming from my house, but noise radiates from um, the source and can affect, you know, anywhere to, um, up to, you know, kilometers and kilometers and kilometers away from its source even if the rest of the habitat is quite nice. You're demonstrating my point quite nicely with your crying. Sound radiates, buddy. (laughs) Yeah, and you can't, like, obviously we try and put up barriers to sound, but there's a limit. And you can't put a barrier to sound of a, a jet flying overhead, for example. You can't sort of, like, wrap it in some kind of audio bubble wrap. It doesn't work. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Or And especially um, sounds that are um, underwater, so shipping lanes and things like that. I mean, you can't block out that noise. That noise is just going to travel through the water and reach animals. And yeah, and that's just, just the way it is. So, you know, that's why we try to figure out how it's exactly affecting animals and how animals are actually able to deal with that. Because it means, you know, we can actually target how to mitigate the noise and, you know, asking the questions, is it actually having a really detrimental effect or is it just kind of a nuisance and animals are able to get around it or are they able to behave differently and it's not actually going to be the be all end all and we should focus our, our efforts elsewhere or, you know, are there simple things that we can do to make, make a space quieter or at least help animals deal with the noise if we can so yeah understanding more about how noise actually affects animals lets us start coming up with solutions as to how to help out with birds is there a difference depending on the species like how much it affects are some birds just like eh, whatever and other birds just like oh my goodness make it stop it's too noisy it seems like there are species differences one of the the reasons I do study birds is because the group of birds called the passerines or two true songbirds 
um, are a big taxonomic group that um, have to learn their language like humans do. And this is actually quite a rare thing in the animal kingdom. Not a lot of animals are able to learn how to make sounds and which sounds to make. So if you raised a, a baby bird in a box, um, a baby songbird in a box, it would not know what sounds to make to sound, to attract a mate or do things like that. So it has to learn that from somebody else. And, and so part of the question is like, does noise affect that particular process more? Or are these birds better able to deal with noise because they can just learn a new song and, you know, go from there? So we don't really know. It's um, really hard to do big species comparisons because we're only just scratching the surface about how noise affects just one or two species. We know that there are species that tend to leave noisy areas and urban areas and other species tend to stay but we really haven't cracked the code yet as to what exactly is you know influencing those decisions you know is it the fact that perhaps they use sound to hunt or they use sound to escape predators and if noise is there they can't escape the predators and so you know something like that is happening don't know there's a whole lot of questions that we are still asking and are still trying to figure out. And uh, yeah, that's, again, like I said, that's one of the cool things about my job is that there's so many questions to ask and so many um, things to find out about how these species are being affected and which ones and why. And it's, It is fascinating. Back to our original like set of questions. What does an average day look like for you? Although I'm sort of feeling it'd be the lecture kind of days and then it'd be fieldwork days or... Yeah, for sure. There's there's teaching days and there's research days. So teaching days, you know, um, I will be standing up in front of a lecture hall or on Zoom, depending on the uh, situation of social distancing, and teaching students about how animals work, diversity, things like that. Um, I do labs as well, so teaching students how to conduct experiments, how to use certain pieces of equipment that they might use in ecology. And of course, all the preparation and then there's marking assignments and marking exams and all that sort of stuff, which is really fun. But my favorite part is, of course, the research. So I have the field days and the lab days and and the writing days. So when I do field work, I'm usually, when I'm doing bird work, getting up quite early in the morning because that's when birds like to get up. There's a reason they call it to wake a sparrow's fart because that's when sparrows are up. Um, so we go out pretty early. Often I'm setting up these big things called mist nets. So they're large nest nets on poles that you set up and the birds can fly into them. And that way we can catch the bird and maybe do some measurements, maybe take a little bit of blood for genetics, maybe put a little band or ring on their legs so that we can identify them later. We will then, you know, let them go. Often I'm running around with a giant microphone outside trying to record their songs or calls. Um, sometimes I've got my instrument that tells me how loud a certain place is in terms of the traffic noise and things like that as well. I've done experiments, like I said, so sometimes I've got birds in cages that I'm playing noise to and seeing how they react. And then I also have, of course, the analysis bit, which involves sitting in front of a computer for hours and hours and hours listening to bird songs and trying to figure things out and asking those kinds of questions. And then, of course, you have to try to do something with this data. So 
you've got your statistics days, which aren't really my favorite days, but it's exciting when you get the results and you get to figure out what's actually going on. And then we've got the writing days. So those are the days where you take your story from start to finish and you say, okay, what question were we asking? What did we find out? How did we find it out? And what does this mean? And where, where can we go from here? And you write, um, and then, you know, you write that all up in an article and you try to get that published in a scientific journal so that other people can read your work and find out what you found out. Yeah. So that, that's kind of, yeah, there's really not a lot of typical days, I guess you could say in quotation marks, which is good because it means that, you know, if you're sick of doing something for a while, like, oh man, I really want to get out of the lab. There's always something else to do, whether that's writing a lecture or whether that's doing some analyses or whether that's going out into the field and getting a few more data sets or what, what not. So yeah, it's, it's, I love that it's not boring. There's always something different to do. Definitely is not monotonous. That seems to be a common thing in academia is that there isn't a, a single day. And yeah, people, that seems to be a big part of what keeps people going is knowing that each day could be a bit different. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's exciting days when you're out at 4.30 in the morning with a giant microphone pointing it at somebody's house and then they call the police on you, but you just were like, there was a bird in your tree and, you know, you got to have to talk your way out of that. <laughs> um, and then there's the boring days where you're just trying to code a statistical test and it just won't work and you spend six hours wondering where, whether you, you know, misplaced a full stop somewhere. Yeah, it's definitely... A mixed bag. What are the core skills that you need to be able to be doing your job well? So skills is a hard one because skills you can you can learn and I think you know you can learn skills like going out and being able to identify birds. Nobody's born with that ability. You have to practice that. Understanding how to edit recordings just like a podcaster does I suppose is a really important thing as well learning how to do statistics is a really good skill writing is a good skill to develop for sure communication is a great skill to develop I mean there are really specific skills as well like how to handle birds and being able to understand how to catch them safely and with minimal with minimal impact on the birds themselves and the environment around you and that sort of thing. So there's lots of different little skills. I use genetic skills. I use laboratory skills. How to When I do things like extract DNA from blood, I'm using pipetting skills and all that. And yeah, it's just practice. And uh, most of these things you can learn in an undergraduate degree or at, at the very least in an honors situation. But I would say, you know, when I'm when I'm looking at sort of students to mentor or when I'm looking at which students I think you know would thrive in academia or at least in furthering their education formally say with a master's or a PhD or something I'm not as concerned about the skill set that they have because I can teach them things what I really want to see is how passionate they are about 
learning and discovering and asking the questions and how insightful they might be in terms of if they get a weird result, what are they going to do? Are they going to throw their hands up and go, well, it didn't work the end. I guess this is, this is it. Or are they going to be excited and say, okay, well, what can we do now? Or how might this reflect the experiment or what's going on in nature and being able to connect all those dots? So, yeah, I think it's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting question because you have skills that you do need to do my job, but those skills, they can be learned by pretty much anybody. I think the biggest thing about going into something like academic research is really having that passion of like, do you love science <laughs> and do you love the things that you are studying? Um, that makes the, the biggest difference. And can you get through the days where everything goes wrong, your data gets deleted, something like that, and then get back up again and still enjoy doing it a couple of days later when the sting's worn off? Exactly, exactly. Like, you know, what gets me through the days of long statistics or long days of writing a lecture or something is the days that I get to go out and chase birds around in the wilderness and still get paid for that. So, you know, like, you know, if I didn't have that, I probably would not would not enjoy this job and would, would quit it. But uh, yeah, the, the field work and the, the results work really keeps me going I guess. What was your path to get from high school to where you are now like did you always have a passion for birds or were there some twists and turns along the way? So in my last year of high school I know it doesn't sound like it but I actually did finish high school in Australia and in my last year of high school I panicked because I didn't know whether I wanted to go into science or music they were my two favorite things and um, so, you know, I spent the last year of my high school trying to get all of my music credentials up so that if I wanted to go into music at university, I would be set up okay to, to do that. Um, and eventually I decided on science, but I did a minor in music. So I did a degree that had both of them. Uh, yeah. So in my third year, I got a position working for a PhD candidate who was studying bird song, and she needed somebody to help her uh, record birds in the field all summer. And I got the job because I was able to tell two individual birds apart by the notes that they sang. Because I was like, well, one of those is a major third and one of those is a minor third. And she's like, I don't know what that means. And I was like, it's music terminology. She's like, you're hired. I was like, cool. <laughs> So I kind of utilized my music expertise, I guess, to get a field job. I was running around lugging a bunch of equipment and chasing birds around the forest and, you know, doing all that sort of stuff. I just sort of thought, you can do this for a living? This is a, this is a job? Like, people actually go into this? I can't. But it just blew my mind. And so from there, I... I you know, did an honors and sort of thought, okay, well, you know, I'll do an honors and we'll see how it goes, but I'm not going to do a master's. And then I went, oh, you know, a master's is only two years. So I did a master's and I got to, again, chase birds around the forest. And I was like, well, that was awesome, but I'm never doing a PhD. And then I was like, well, you know, a PhD, it's just the same, more of the same. So I did a PhD where I was chasing birds. 
around cities and um i'd absolutely loved it and i sort of thought yeah but i'll never go into academia like you know that's just not for me and then i sort of thought at the end well why isn't it for me this is you know what i love to do so why don't i do it but yeah in high school i mean i just i got all i did all of my science courses um and i did my my music courses and apparently those two things came together in the end and in a in a weird way that i never would have expected because i didn't even know this job existed really <laughs> so yeah it wasn't it wasn't a planned thing in high school i i knew i loved science and i knew i loved music and it just worked out that those two things could be combined in a weird but cool way do you still get to use some of the music knowledge now like does that still come up uh yeah it totally does i um especially when it comes to things like learning different software to produce, say, playback or to um, analyze songs and analyze calls. You know, there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of software and there are a lot of programs out there that people can use in music that as a bird researcher, you go, oh, that's exactly what I need. And so you take that program and you sort of work with it to your own specifications to to do your analyses so yeah there's totally there are totally similarities there's totally skills that I use for music that are applied uh in my in my bird song research for sure yeah (laughs) it's it's pretty cool it's fantastic because that's like having that combination of backgrounds is it's not unique but it's not super common and that obviously is going to give you an edge in even just being able to hear the different notes that the birds are hearing singing that's that's awesome yeah i think too you know being being a a musician or something you're just also really aware of sounds i guess so the questions of like how is noise the question of how is noise affecting you know how birds sing probably you know probably wouldn't kind of come up unless you were a little bit into attuned to your environments in terms of how it sounds. And I mean, this could be said for, for anything. I know people that are visual artists that are very interested in bird coloration, for instance, things like that. So people often think of the arts and the sciences as two different things, but that's far, far from the truth. I think. They go together very well. If all the awesome things you get to do and like obviously the bit that I'd be most jealous of is running around catching and hanging out with pretty little birds what's your favorite bit what like helps you get up at whatever it is 3am in the morning and really get into it um there's probably two two bits that are my favorite one is yeah just spending the time outside being able to kind of, I guess, look into the private lives of the birds, being able to, say, hold and handle a bird and just look at it really closely and say, like, wow, you, this thing exists. That's so cool. So that's, and, and you know, just the in, knowing that the environment exists and just being in that environment is very mindful, I guess, might, you might call it. Being in nature, even in the city at 5 a.m. is really kind of a weird and cool experience when things are just starting to wake up and you know you're there and there's birds there and you go there's a lot of birds in the city I didn't realize (laughs) 
Um, so that's one of my favorite things is the, is the field work and the, the running around and the, the recording and the work with animals in hand. And then the other favorite thing that I have is when I have a paper come out and I go, I did this, I produced this, this research contributes to our huge body of human knowledge in some way. It hopefully contributes to making the world a little bit of a better place, perhaps, at least hopefully in terms of, you know, increasing our knowledge, but also also showing us a path that we might take to rectify maybe some of the wrongs that we've been doing over the years. So I think those are the, those are the two big things. I have a third sort of little one, and that's when I get an email from a student saying, ah, I really loved that lecture. I really want to pursue science now. Um, you know, how would I, yeah, that sort of thing too. Like, that'll give me a little kick of adrenaline and a, and a little joy in, in my life too. So, you know, that's a, that's a third, a third rewarding aspect that keeps me going, especially in terms of teaching. Because if I didn't get any love from the students, I would probably just <laughs> learn to hate that part. But I am, um, yeah, it's really awesome when you know that the students have learned something or, you know, just grasped something they never grasped before or got switched on to something that they didn't even know existed, kind of like I, I did when I was in undergrad. They are all really awesome things, I reckon. you got a good combination going on. <laughs> I think so. I really like it. <laughs> I feel very, very lucky to be in my job. Like I can't iterate that enough. It's kind of a dream, a dream job. And it was hard work getting here for sure. But it's uh, yeah, 100% worth it. I think that's also will benefit the students as well, though, right? Like if they can see you're passionate, um, that trickles through. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I hope so anyway. And you know, they, they often, they can feed off of that, right? Like, yeah, if you're, if you're bored, they're probably going to be bored. But if you're like, look at this really cool thing, they're going to be like, ah, <laughs> they're going to also react in the same way. So yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be so boring to teach something that you weren't interested in, wouldn't it? That would be hard. Have you got any advice for any young people, whether they're like upper high school or whether maybe your students in what's it called? Undergrad. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Like, have you got any advice for young people who are like, this sounds like an awesome way to live and to make money? How do I do that? What should I invest in? I would say continue to do the things that you are interested in. So if you're going into your undergraduate degree, you're picking a program, a bachelor program or something like that. You're trying to pick your classes and you're trying to go, okay, well, what do I want to study? Start really broad, start really wide, start doing things that, you know, do a huge variety of things that interest you. Okay. Music and biology, not necessarily a, you know, a combo that comes up as a pre-made selection for, for people. But the two things that I was really interested in. So I would say cast your net really wide. And I would say once you find out which things really push your happy button, continue with those. So latch onto those, try to do as much as you can with those, start volunteering 
applying for jobs, that sort of thing in that sphere. The students that I know have gone on to do things that they really love are the ones that have, you know, just volunteered with research projects where maybe they were cleaning bird cages for a while or, yeah, they were, you know, my my minions carrying my equipment around the field. Um, and just like I started, I, you know, I, I started by being a bit of a lackey in undergraduate sort of, oh, yeah, I guess this sounds cool. I need to make a few bucks, so... I guess I'll go out into the forest and, yeah, try things that way. Students will stand out for two reasons. Either they are extraordinarily frustrating or they are extraordinarily motivating for us. And you want to be the latter. <laughs> you want to be the kind of student that goes up to your prof and says, this is really cool. How can I get involved? And if you do that, you're golden. You'll, you know... They say you'll never work a day in your life, which is absolutely not true. You will work and it will be hard and it will, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it will uh, sometimes be boring and it will sometimes be frustrating and it will sometimes um, be backbreaking, but, but man, will it be rewarding. Do you think it's fair to say if students haven't had a great experience with one particular stream of science or something at school that it's still worth having another go at it at uni? Yeah, I think it depends on why they had a bad experience. If you had a bad experience because the teacher wasn't your cup of tea or something like that, then I would say definitely try try again with another teacher or with an undergraduate class or something like that. Make friends in the class that you're in and you know, with like-minded people um, because that often makes it a lot easier as well. If you can find a group that you can chat about the material with or do group projects together with then then you might find it a lot a lot easier or at least a lot more palatable yeah so I'd say I'd say if you know definitely give it another go but don't beat a dead horse either you know don't waste your time doing something that you think you should be good at if it doesn't interest you because that's also not not great a couple of a couple of chances is good. Uh, giving it a couple of chances is a good strategy, but you know if you're like, well, I really should like X, and you just don't, then don't worry about it. Just drop it. It's okay. X might not be for everyone, and it's all right to pursue something else and change your mind. And that's another reason why I say cast your net wide, because if you cast your net wide and you've got a whole variety of things that you're, you're studying or that you're involved in, then you can drop one of them. And it's not like you don't have anywhere else to go. You can start pursuing one of your other pathways and go from there. It might take you a little longer, but that's okay. It's not actually a rush. <laughs> There's no race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> definitely not a race <laughs> exactly it's definitely not a race <laughs> with the work you're doing is there any way that mature age people who don't necessarily want to go back to uni is there any way they can be involved like is there citizen science happening can they volunteer somehow oh yeah there totally is there's a lot of um, projects there are a lot of projects out there that utilize citizen science nowadays I use a lot of data off of 
sites such as eBird, um, which is the Cornell University bird record system where people put in the records of birds they've seen. There's the Atlas of Living Australia that uses people's um, sightings for things. There are, I'm a part of a project called Leaf to Reef, which is a project coming out of Lady Elliot Island on the Great Barrier Reef where I'm contributing the data collection for the red-tailed tropic birds and genetic connectivity there. Um, And we're using a lot of citizen science data, especially in terms of photographs that people have of of all of the biodiversity on that island to try and really quantify what's living around there. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways to get involved. You do not need to be an academic to be part of the bird banding system in Australia either. You can band birds just by going through some training um, and getting getting good at it, getting that skill up, and then contributing to a nationwide database that's been going on for decades and decades and decades. So there's, there's a lot to, that you can do, and there's a lot you can contribute. You can always go back to school too. It's always an option. I don't think, I like, I love our mature students. I love my mature students. They're always so engaged and motivating. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's lots. There's lots that you can do um, in terms of, of citizen science if you're if you're wanting to, for sure. And it's a good reminder for those people who have been contributing to citizen science that it is actually used by researchers. Like it doesn't just go into some sort of data center to die. A hundred percent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If you if you do the big backyard bird count with um, Birds Australia or something like that. That's not just a fun thing to get you outside and give you something to do. It's also actually helping a lot of us. You know, I'm using that data right now to source sites to, to do my research. So it, it 100% is, is used for things that you may not even imagine, <laughs> for sure. Are there any myths out there, whether it's about your work as a lecturer or whether it's about sound and birds, are there any myths out there in the the general public that you'd like to use this opportunity to do a bit of squashing? Firstly, I'll just apologize to listeners for the noise of my 16-month-old son in the background. If it has popped through or is going to pop through, that's just part and parcel of uh, (laughs) being an academic mom, by the way. Yeah. Uh, So misconceptions. I think sometimes people worry that when a researcher is doing work on wild animals that we or on any animals, that we don't really care about the animal and we're just there for the science. And that's absolutely not true. I'm actually also on the um, animal ethics committee of my university. We're really concerned with how we treat animals. And when we're doing a research project that involves animals, um, not only are we concerned about the individual animal's welfare, but we also, you know, are trying to answer broad questions that helps to conserve biodiversity and protect animals as a whole group as well. So I think that can be a misconception, you know, when somebody sees a researcher maybe taking a selfie with a bird in their hand or something and they go, that poor little bird. And you kind of think, yeah, but this bird has just helped us and helped its own species and helped possibly dozens of other species in terms of what we're going to find out from research. And, you know, We did try to take as good of care of it as we could, just like you would say a cat in your house or 
something like that. So I think that can be a misconception that that we don't care about the animals, we only care about the science. And that's absolutely not true. Often a lot of us are in the science because we care about the animals. So that would be that would be one thing for sure. I reckon that's a that's a good one. Scientists aren't this sort of like big pile of cold hearted soulless people like often yeah they go into these things because they're passionate about making a difference or because they're really curious about that one particular kind of mollusk who knows exactly yeah exactly and and we're not we're not about to sort of sacrifice everything for you know just for the the sake of the question or whatever we're very attuned to what we're doing and the way that the world works and possibly mistakes that have been made by scientists in the past in terms of ethical quandaries and things like that. We're all, most of us are striving to do better in that sense and, and wanting to answer our questions in a way that doesn't, you know, is least harmful, I, I suppose. So we've covered on a lot of things. Is there anything else you wanted to take this opportunity to talk about? Anything we haven't touched on? I would probably just quickly touch on the fact that I do know students that tend to drop out or pursue other paths because they think that they're not smart enough or they think that they are not, maybe they are really wanting a family and they think, oh, that's you know way too busy. I'm going to have to do field work and this and that, things like that. So they just think, oh, that's not, I can't do that. And for whatever reason. And what I would say to that is, like I said, skills can be learned. You don't have to be smart to learn skills. You don't even have to be quote unquote smart in a traditional test taking way to be able to answer scientific questions either. My first year biology class, I think I averaged a 56 or something. Like I was not top of my class whatsoever. Yeah, it's a pass. Yay. Um, and no high distinction there though. So I would say, you know, don't, I, I'd say not to be concerned about putting yourself in a bubble in terms of things like I'm not smart or I'm, I'm a, young mom or I, I'm this and that, I'm not going to make something of myself in this, in this way. There are a lot of different paths to get to this place to, to do what you love to do. And you just can make it work if you're passionate, if this is what you really want to do and you, you love it, find somebody or find a bunch of people, find at least a few people that can help you get there. Because those of us that are here probably went through similar things of thinking, I'm, I can't do this, or I don't even know how to do this, or I don't even know what I want to do, or that sort of thing. And we had people help us. So yeah, I'd say don't put yourself in a box. Don't feel that you're not smart enough. Don't feel like you can't do something if it is the thing that you love, because you probably can. You just need a little bit of help and a little bit of guidance as to how to get there and and what to do to make it fit with what your life is so that's what I would say and having to do something whether it's a degree PhD anything like that doing that on your own time frame in your own way that that's not a fail like that's a success absolutely yeah for sure doing it however and whenever and however long (laughs) it takes um, is absolutely I mean, at the end of the day, if you end up in the, the place that you want to be, 
the road there doesn't really matter so much in terms of what, you know, how, how successful you can be. I like that advice. I think there's a lot of people who prematurely label themselves and thus limit them, limit their potential quite horrendously, which is very sad. Exactly. Yeah. Don't do it, people. (laughs) You're capable. (laughs) If you, if you, if you love it, just, just try it. Find somebody to help you try it. And find role models or like people who've had a similarly non-linear path and see, see if that you can ask them some questions. Exactly. So to wrap up, have you got a virtual high five for us? Someone out there doing something awesome that you think deserves a little bit of recognition that you'd like everyone listening to the podcast to give a virtual high five to? Like, I mean, the problem is, is I have so many people that I would like love to give a high five to. I mean, we just had International Women's Day and I have so many amazing women role models in behavioral ecology um, that I would love to give a high five to. So I would probably give a high five to all of my babysitters and my nannies that have helped me take care of this little kiddo while I've I've had to do field trips and things because I've had quite a few of them. And even some of them are just PhD students that tag along for the ride and have to just kid wrangle as their part-time job. But yeah, um, I would give a high five to any single moms in science because whoop whoop. We, we rock and we can still do it, even though it's like a crazy juggle. Um, yeah, I'd give a, give a high five to their kids too for putting up with us. And I'm going to give a massive high five to everyone who helps support these people and helps them stay in science and keep asking awesome questions and finding awesome answers. A hundred percent. Yeah, uh, for sure. All of the people that are supportive and, and all of those mentors out there that, um, that do the good things. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Dominique. It has been absolutely fascinating. And I think everyone's going to be listening to the birdies cheeping in the morning a little bit differently now. I hope so. Yeah, pay attention. See what. See if you can figure out whether they're a city bird or a country bird for me. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic.